spine and sprocket. The book to read is not the one that thinks for you, but the one which makes you think. A classic is a book that is never finished saying what it has to say. No two persons ever read the same book. That is part of the beauty of all literature. You discover that your longings are universal longings, that you're not lonely and isolated from anyone. You belong. This story, then, is our testament and our tribute to 234 young Americans who died beside us during four days in Landing Zone X-Ray and Landing Zone Albany in the Valley of Death, 1965. That is more Americans than were killed in any regiment, north or south, at the Battle of Gettysburg, and far more than were killed in combat in the entire Persian Gulf War. Seventy more of our comrades died in the Iodrang in desperate skirmishes before and after the big battles at X-Ray and Albany. All the names, 305 of them, including one Air Force pilot, are engraved on the third panel to the right, the apex of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C., and on our hearts. This is also the story of the suffering of families whose lives were forever shattered by the death of a father, a son, a husband, a brother in that valley. While those who have never known war may fail to see the logic, this story also stands as tribute to the hundreds of young men of the 320th, 33rd, and 66th regiments of the People's Army of Vietnam, who died by our hand in that place. They too fought and died bravely. They were a worthy enemy. We who killed them pray that their bones were recovered from that wild, desolate place where we left them and taken home for decent and honorable burial. This is our story and theirs, for we were soldiers once and young. Hello, everyone. That was a reading from the intro of We Were Soldiers Once and Young, obviously, because that's the line, last line of the intro. And it's, it's uh, I'm Dave. And I'm Jeff. And this is Spine, Spine and Sprocket. And Sprocket the that's show that compares books, versions, to film versions. And does it very well. Very well. Tell your friends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> If you have any friends, it could be the people, the three or four people that are listening don't have any friends. <laughs> yes, and this is written by Lieutenant General Harold G. Moore, retired, and Joseph L. Galloway, who were two of the actual people involved in this action. Who was Galloway, though? Galloway was the... Um, photographer, dude? Photographer, <gasps> yeah. I just figured that out. Oh, is that well, right? Well, I didn't figure it out. You just told yeah. me. Wow. How did oh, I not get a that? A light just went on over Dave's head. How did I not get... Oh, should I turn it off? It's kind of bright. Yeah. 
How did no. I not see that? Leave it on. You look like the the ghost of Christmas uh, future or something. <laughs> that would be the future one, yeah. Yeah. No, that was the past one. Oh, is it the past one? The little, uh, the boy with the flame over his head? Yeah, maybe that was. No, past. the big fat man in the green robes. That was present. Present. That was Christmas present. Okay. Yeah. What was past was the first one. The woman? Oh, sometimes it's a woman. Sometimes, isn't it a little kid with a... Depends on the version you see, I guess. Well, guess what we'll have to do next on Spine and Spine? Yeah. <laughs> Dickens. One of the 32 different versions of wow. A Christmas Carol. Yeah. However many there are. Well, first up, Jeff, overall impressions. We were soldiers once and young. Oh. Well, uh, I thought this was a great book. I'm glad I read this book, but it, I, I do have to tell you it was heartbreaking throughout because it's a very personal account of war. And then there are many very personal accounts of war, but there's something that really was, um, that hit me more for this, maybe because I was a youngster through these years, and so I remember this, and it just seems a, a lot more immediate than reading about World War II or anything older than that. Um, so it, just the detail that it goes into and the action, and uh, I, I thought it was a great book. I'm glad I read it, but I, I, I would say I'm affected by it. So we should do a comedy next. Yeah, probably a good idea. Yeah. What about you? What um, do you think? Yes, I'm, I think I'm more used to the violence and the people dying i wasn't as moved um there was a part that moved me several parts that moved me a lot we'll get to those as we plow through uh mm-hmm. and um i did notice you know i think he covers like every soldier by name and where they're from yes did you notice that he, i did yes he introduced each person yeah so i think he's been very careful to really give all these guys the honor that's due them I thought that was really kind of unique. And other accounts, you wouldn't get such detailed names of That's people. That's true, yeah. Uh, he's got the list in the front here, at least my version also. Um, yeah, and I think he did that, he probably did that for a reason, because besides just being the story of what happened, it's a, it's, it's a historical recounting. So it's almost like uh, anybody that was there or anybody that knew somebody that was there could come to this book and find exactly where they were and what they were doing. Yes. Yep. True. It's almost like an after action report. Yes. Too, in a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah. For you military fans. Yeah. Uh-huh. Which is an interesting form of writing. And I, I, I hadn't read uh, up until about 10 years ago, I hadn't read a lot of military fiction, but I found it very interesting when a, an author would write something and they would write about a particular occurrence like a machine gun nest that got taken out. Could be that. And then the next four paragraphs might be four different people who were involved in that and and what they saw yeah. in taking out that machine gun. And so it's a little bit repetitive. You know, you hear you're kinda of hearing the same thing over this and over. Book. I've noticed it in this book, I've noticed it in other books. Okay. Like I've got books about the, the screaming eagles. Uh there was an account in there and um very similarly set up. So they would say, we wandered upon a German squad. And so-and-so, then so-and-so would talk about 
their encounter with the German squad. And then the next guy would also talk about what he remembered about the German squad. And the next guy would talk about what he remembered. So and like, I, did, I did find that in here. I found it a little bit repetitive. Yes, I agree. Except each guy also has a di- brings a different perspective to what he saw. I also find it interesting the way they recount it sometimes. It seems, and maybe it's just all they can handle. It's a little bit offhanded the way they talk about it. 300 so-and-sos came up and we shot them all dead. It's a little bit, sometimes a little bit cold in that way. But so I, I think that's probably typical for these kinds. Yeah, I think that's true. And remember, these people live through this experience. Right. Um, mine has maps in the front. Did yours have some yeah, good maps? Yeah, some really good maps, which I found very, very useful. Though, did you find yourself uh, following along with them yeah. very much? Yeah. yeah, I did flip back and forth. I yeah. would have even liked maybe even more detailed, closer-up maps. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it would have been better. <clears throat> like, where was the machine gun nest and so on? Yeah. And I would have liked to actually see the maps maybe interspersed along with the text a that, little bit. That would be better. Rather mm-hmm. than having to flip back and forth, because... There's a lot of detail about this platoon moving that way and that squad moving this way, and you, it's hard to follow. I mean, I didn't really try to follow it that much. Other than the but, terrain, like the, the gully the and creek the crest line yeah. and certain features that stayed stagnant to keep us, give us our bearings. Yeah. So, you know, I noticed in the opening prologue, too, he did dedicate this to uh, the North Vietnamese Army, as well as the United States soldiers. Yes. And he's been very careful to give respect to the enemy throughout this book, yeah. even getting um, viewpoints from the Vietnamese generals. Yes. Remember? Yes. What we our goal was or what we were learning and yeah. so on. And how wild is that? How How incredible must that be to be in contact with the people that you were at war with? After the fact. Yeah, and that that happens in for this war fairly often. Yeah. And the Vietnamese people, my understanding is, is they're they're fairly open to talking about it. Yeah, seems like it. They really view it as American was just another one of the imperial powers coming in and trying their stuff. And they're helpful in locating remains of soldiers that are still being found and brought home mm-hmm. to this day. And... uh uh, you know, guys go back. Guy went back just to Tunnels of Coochie and another book that I had, and he talked about they give their view of the whole thing, a little bit one-sided history, but um, then they give you on the tours, and, you know, he says, I was here, and they're like, oh, well, welcome back to Vietnam, you know. Yeah, welcome back to now Vietnam. It's another, <laughs> now it's a better place. and Yeah, which is just weird, too, because, uh, and I felt a little bit of that, too. I guess, I, I don't know, I... Like I say, the book affected me. A lot of what I was thinking of after I read it was, what was it all for? And, of course, we could talk about that endlessly. We could. But it makes me just think that I, I don't want to study war no more. I don't want to study war, <laughs> war no, no more. don't want to study war no more. I just don't because it's... Uh, it's such a sad state of the human condition. And I always waffle back and forth into it, thinking, oh, yeah. someday we'll get rid of this, and it's always bad, and then sometimes it's necessary, never noble, but um, certainly you do want to have a strong standing army. Yeah, right. You know, 
because someone else is going to do it to you, you know. But yeah. No, it, it does bring up questions, and especially because of the war turned out differently than Korea. So, yes, And when right. I teach this, yeah. that's one of the things we look at. Korea, kids will define it as a draw. I always ask them, what was the goal? And did we accomplish that goal, keeping the South Korea free? And Well, in the middle of the war, they changed the goal to go ahead and take out the North, <laughs> if you remember, in Korea. Yeah, I'm not really up on my Korean yeah, War so history, we, 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 so I'll, I'll have to sit in on your class next yeah. year. Oh, yeah, you, yeah, you should. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, so it opens with prologue. Who's that gray-haired lady in the back of the... <laughs> with the beard. That's With the beard, <laughs> the bearded lady. She's got a nice prologue, a little background on the war getting yeah. set up in there. Heat of battle. I know it's one part I, I highlighted on page 10 in my version. Uh Talking about the 82nd Airborne with Gavin and, and the vision of this new air cavalry fighting force and mm-hmm. cavalry, and I don't mean horses, on the helicopter. So this is the first helicopter r- real war. Limited use in Korea. Do you ever, when you watched uh, MASH, did you used to think it was about Vietnam when you were a kid? Uh, no. Oh. I actually knew the difference then. <laughs> I didn't. Yeah, I know a lo- I know other people that were like that, too. They just didn't quite Because the choppers make the, would come uh, in. Distinction. And- but yeah, Vietnam, a very unique um, war in terms of using the helicopter to get in and out. I have a worksheet in school I use with this, and I, it's I, I during battles. It's these battles. Oh, really? Kids read a worksheet. Yeah. Questions are about geography and, and um, you know, the intent and why this area, the crossroads, Plaiku and Highway 19 and so on. And that's laid out here in the beginning. But uh, the, And then the use of helicopters to get these troops in and out quickly into valleys. You know, you don't have to trudge over mountains. Yeah. Right? Right. They can come in and land almost anywhere. Right. Yeah. Seems like a great idea in in uh, theory. And I guess this was one of the first battles where they actually would put it into practice. Yes. Yep. So it gives a history of starting up that the cav, air cav He talked about the um, some of the background of having men taken out of his unit. Yeah, I thought that was that they mentioned that in the movie as well. Yes, they did. Which and I thought, wow, that really does that brings another dimension into it. That you know, war is fought by men with face to face on a battlefield. And uh, but it's controlled by politicians and who are concerned about a lot of other things, not having anything to do with the outcome of a battle. Yes, and all- yeah, I was just going to say. And so it, here, on the eve, practically of them going into battle, um, a lot of about a third of his forces were rotated out because, because they'd they come to the end of their service yeah, term. And so he had to replace those with a lot of uh, inexperienced soldiers and he was pretty upset about that and he got new new lieutenants brought in and so on and that was one of the things too when when i teach vietnam i ask the central we we focus history around essential questions now like for for vietnam to say it in a insulting way to vietnam how did the united states lose lose a war or if you don't like that terminology not achieve its objective Hmm. against a bunch of peasants yeah. And I state it that way to illustrate the point that this is a third world power fighting a first world power. 
the corollaries, if you think about it, with the Revolutionary War to the Vietnam War, huge, right? The yeah, British, I guess so, right? <clears throat> there's yeah. this checklist assignment I, I used to have. I never get to it in these days. But, um, you know, the the first world power, Britain, world's greatest navy, you know, against this colonies with very, you know, small navy. or And it's just the same kind of thing. Yeah. You know, but the advantages, home field advantage, oh, to the colonists, That's yes, right. to the Vietnamese and so on. It's a very interesting checklist. It yeah. matches up almost perfectly. And, of course, we weren't just fighting them. They were backed by superpowers. Yeah. Right. And China, did you know, like Nixon, China sold out Vietnam? In, in the end well, of this thing? What do you mean? When Nixon started talking to the Chinese, opening up the economy, right, mm-hmm. and trade, they started to give less support to Vietnam. Oh. In the film clip I show at school, the Vietnamese guy is saying, uh, yeah, we felt betrayed by the superpowers. And then I have a very interesting book, too. Um, I forget the name of it, but it's written by a Vietnamese guy from his perspective of the war. And it's dedicated to my brothers who were betrayed by the Communist Party. Wow. <laughs> yeah. How's that for revealing? Yeah. Isn't Very, that something? It is. He fought for the communists and then felt they betrayed all the peasants and, yeah. you know, in the end. Interesting. And meanwhile, while all that's going on, there's men face-to-face on a battlefield. Like these men. Which is really mostly what this book is about. Yeah, they, they get the name now 1st Cav Division, of course, tied into the 1st um, uh, Battalion 7th Cavalry, of course. The 7th Cavalry famous for? Yeah, General Custer's outfit. And Little Big Horn. Yeah. And they used the term Gary Owen a lot. He yes. Says, Gary it, Owen, sir. It was a drinking song, I guess, wasn't it? It's, uh, yeah. Is it, it was, is a, it a, it was a, rowdy, a rowdy Irish drinking song, uh, which the 7th Cavalry used as its marching tune. The words Gary Owen made their way through to the regimental crest, and the officers and men of the regiment customarily <laughs> accompanied each other uh, each exchange of salutes with a hearty, hearty Gary, Gary Owen, Owen, sir. We picked yeah. up the tradition. I mean, that exact page. Yeah, oh, are you? Okay. Is that page 26 in your book? <clears throat> 20, yes. Okay. I think we have the same book. Yours is just smaller. Because I have a smaller brain. And also talk about Johnson. There was a little slamming of Johnson, not running the war like people think he should have to win the war. Yeah, I think he probably took a lot of flack about that. That's something else I don't know much about. I lived through those Johnson years, but... Um, Very interesting, page 28. The uh, mascot, Maggie the Mule, Yeah. who was gunned down by one of my Charlie Company men as she wandered the perimeter on yeah. a dark night. That was sad. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm laughing. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, Jeff, I forgot you. <laughs> you really like animals. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> did you did you know Teddy Roosevelt's horses were dropped into the bay off the coast of Cuba? Dropped from where? To swim in. Inland. Oh, no, really? They couldn't get in. The men all had to jump in boats and go in to beach, and they dropped the horses in. And, he, and uh, what was the one? Little Brown? or One of his horses started swimming out to sea, and the bugler blew his trumpet. <laughs> And it turned around, and it came swimming up to shore. Oh. Isn't that nice? I'm glad that had a happy ending. That's so rare. But I digress. Yeah, and I, I don't know, I actually don't know why I, I highlighted here that malaria apparently took its toll quite a bit 
there. He was remarking that within six weeks, 56 troopers from my battalion alone had been evacuated to hospitals suffering serious cases of malaria. Which, uh, you know, it's like you don't have enough to worry about when you're in war, but you're in war in, in a jungle theater like that, and you've got stuff to worry about. Which was malaria. also a huge problem in the Spanish-American War. Yeah. The, um, and then, of course, he talked about the, the helicopter fly time, right? It was also brought out in the movie. They'll drop this guys in and then it was what half an hour yeah it was 15 it was 15 minutes back to the base the base pick and up then men. to pick up men right so so i'm starting to think about parachutists you know would, you, would it have been better to just parachute a bunch of guys in oh yeah don't hear much about parachuting no in vietnam, vietnam. maybe the jungle is not the best spot for that don't know but you know it's kind of funny not funny but the way the whole thing came about looks like is they they were just sort of trying to find the enemy, search and and, and engage the enemy, search and, and destroy to figure out how the enemy fights for the Vietnamese. For the Vietnamese, uh, they were anxious to take on the Americans and see how we differ yeah. from the French or yeah. from the Chinese before that or from. But I think on the American side too, that was sort of their their goal of this whole thing. To find the enemy and engage. Yeah, at least, you know, for this engagement. Because this is one of the early engagements in Vietnam. I yeah, think? and they, yes, it is. And they didn't know all those, the NVA, North Vietnamese Army, although he referred to them as something else in the dedication. Um, I read it at the beginning of the show the there. The ARVN. Army of the Republic of Vietnam? Yeah, Arv, I think that's Arvin? it. Yeah, ARVN. Okay. Into coming out to reinforce. And the, yes. in the beginning, he says the People's Army of Vietnam. Yeah. Because okay. you had the Viet Cong, the local guerrilla fighters, and then you had the NBA. Yeah. Yeah. Army of North, North – NBA is the Northern Vietnamese Army. And, yeah, you uh, – I mean, throughout <clears throat> this, you really get the uh, sense of how important the helicopters were and how important it was to keep the landing zone clear and so that the – the helicopters constantly had access, bringing in, you know, stuff that I, I wouldn't normally think about. You know, they run out of water. They run out of food. They run out of ammunition. And so they're constantly moving the helicopters back and forth as they, as throughout the action. Yeah. Which is pretty harrowing. And coming in on a hot landing zone. Yeah. And in fact, it, um, yeah, one of the, Film clips I show in school also is this battle. It's one of the opening Vietnam Vietnam War film clips. Oh, the ARVN is the is the South Vietnamese Army. Oh, it is okay. The Army of the Republic of we Vietnam. We stand corrected. Yeah, NVA is the North. I'll sit corrected also. So yeah, keeping those landing zones free, and they had to move one back at some point, right? They did, yeah. And of course, in the opening, then a military historian. I got a little bit here, page seventy-five. SLA Marshall wrote that in the beginning of the battle, units fractionalize. Groping between the, antag between the antagonists takes place. Battle takes form from all this. Marshall had it right. That's precisely what was happening in the scrub brush above landing zone X-ray. No other event could have had a greater impact in the shape of the battle than what Lieutenant Henry Herrick was in the process of doing. He charged right past Lieutenant Devney's men, swung his platoon to the right in hot pursuit of a few fleeing enemy soldiers, and disappeared from sight into the brush. Says Sergeant Savage, he made a bad decision, and we knew at the time it was bad. We were breaking contact with the rest of the company. We were supposed to come up on the flank of 1st Platoon, and we were moving away from them. So remember, that's the kind of hot-headed guy that 
goes out there and gets that company. The, the Lost Platoon? Yes. Herrick? Yeah, yeah, set out there on the side. Right. So for people who aren't familiar with this particular book, I mean, the whole thing is about this one action, which takes place over a two-and-a-half-day, three-day period. Doesn't cover really much of the training or anything like that, which the movie does, but it just pretty much covers getting into, taking the troops into the landing zone and then engaging the enemy for two and a half days and all of the crazy stuff that happens in that time. Um, moves along at a good clip. I think the book is well written from that standpoint. Yeah, and I made a note here, page 113, about these, the helicopters not just ferrying troops in but also being fighting vehicles that uh he says it's an experience for an air force pilot to watch a gaggle of hueys attack a target we pride ourselves on flexibility of thought quick response time ability to react to ever-changing situations but we are committed to a somewhat linear thought process in the attack the target's always directly in front of us not so with a huey to watch four or eight of them at a time maneuvering up and down and laterally and even backward boggles a fighter pilot's mind yeah those guys swarm a target like bees over honey. They really got down in there with the trees, with the troops. Yeah. Yeah, so you, and you saw a lot of that in the film, some support fire. So then they went. They lived through a couple of nights. Rough nights. I mean, constant action throughout the day, uh, really without respite. And then at night, things were quiet, but there was plenty of uh, incidents here and there where they would drop some illumination and see and enemy soldiers that were creeping up, and then they'd call in artillery. I thought that... Yeah, like, there's that one scene of the movie we'll talk about next show. Yeah. I really uh, found it interesting reading about the artillery, calling in the artillery. These artillery batteries, which are five miles away, and they're yeah. calling in, and <laughs> they're spot on. They're hitting these target yeah. areas that seem like they're just, you know, within a few feet of where they are supposed to be. It's amazing. It is amazing. And they'll be moving up on the enemy, and they'll have the, the barrage creeping ahead of them, so it'll it'll gently be pushing the enemy back. and It's just amazing. Yeah, and they didn't have the drones or the visuals no. that they have. They're yeah. just coordinates. Yeah, just coordinates. You know? And they talked about it. I, I lost the page, but they talked about how they had fired, like, all day long and had melted two oh, tubes right. on a couple of their, yeah, I forgot that on one. A couple of their howitzers and... Stacks and stacks and stacks of spent shells, casings. Yeah, and then to counter that, of course, the the techniques, and again, when I ask that question, how do we not achieve our objective, or uh, there's a lot of answers to that, of course. Right? One, the tenacity of our enemy, which uh, Lieutenant General Moore is definitely talking about in this book. Yes. And the film also will show that. Also, that they countered our artillery by getting in, as it says on here on page 165, the enemy objective was to position his assault force right under our noses, so close that our artillery could not effectively be used. Right. And I would read from other Vietnam books at school to the kids, and and they I quote a, a general Giap, I think, who said, "Yes, to to get in and hold the Americans by their belts, so they couldn't use their overwhelming firepower on us at a distance." Right. You know, as, as a, so they figured out to do that. Yeah, but. Regardless of the fact that the uh, Americans went in and were fighting a seasoned group of soldiers, it still astonishes me the the uh, statistics of how many were killed on either side. 
And it reminds me of do Americans have, during uh, fighting the Japanese during World War II. Yeah. Do you have those? Where the, ja- like the Japanese would just throw wave after wave of soldiers against yeah. against walls of American firepower and uh, just lose thousands of soldiers. Yeah. I, I think um, do you remember in this engagement, th- 3,000 Vietnamese. To 350 American? Uh, 248. Something I like think. that. Yeah. And in the film at school, The Century I Show, mm-hmm. uh, they give that quote at the end of it, the clip. They said American generals were looking for a fight. They landed in here. I drank. They they were they got one. Yeah, <laughs> and how we held off with these massive troops. And I, we give those statistics. I asked the kids, so who won? Yeah, they all say, well, we did. Of course, I said, look at that. We did. Look, look at the statistics. Now, then I asked the question: How do you measure victory? Right. Is it just numbers? No. 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 It's but though ch- you would think you would, it's easy to make the mistake to think, well, you know, if we kill ten times as many of them as they kill of us, we will win eventually. But that was not the case. Uh, we fought no. that war for a long time, and, and if that, even if those statistics kept up throughout the war, we which didn't it win. did, which it did, we it, didn't win. No, because no. they, uh, we were fight, fell into a war of attrition. A little realizing that that's what they were doing yeah they knew we just have to keep killing more and more americans and they yeah will tire of it right just like the french just like the chinese just like the other peoples yeah have throughout our history which i guess is always the real challenge for any conquering army there's one thing to conquer a country's army it's another thing to conquer the people yes very 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 much harder yes. to do and i don't even know I'm going to try to think of how often it's been successful, really. Uh, and illustrating the numbers of dead going up against one of the machine guns is this little piece here. I was looking out front, and I could see some of the grass going down like, like somebody was crawling in it. I hollered, Who's out there? Nobody answered, so I hollered again. Who's out there? No answer. I turned to Coleman. Burn him. Coleman said, my rifle's jammed. I, I looked at him and, and him at me, and then I looked back to the front, and they were growing out of the weeds. I just remember getting on that machine gun, and from there on, I guess the, the training takes over, and you put your mind somewhere else, because I really don't remember what specifically I did. I was totally unaware of the time, the conditions... On that M60 machine gun, according to extracts from his Silver Star citation, Specialist Parrish delivered lethal fire on wave after wave of the enemy until he ran out of ammunition. Then, standing up under fire with a 45 pistol in each hand, Parrish fired clip after clip into the enemy who were 20 yards out. He stopped their attack. Says Parrish... I feel like I didn't do anything more than anybody else did up there. I remember a lot of noise, a lot of yelling, and then all at once, it was quiet. And uh, he, he does lay out the chapters, and then he has the titles, and then he has these quotes. But I found one quote to not quite match. Chapter 13, Friendly Fire. Um... Dolce Balaam in expertus. War is delightful to those who have no experience of it. 
Yeah. You had a problem with that? Oh, yeah. I wrote it doesn't match down below. Oh, because he talks about the enemy walking around laughing and shooting our he, wounded. He mentions and that. And I thought that would, didn't fit that little bit. Yeah, I see but what you're saying. Other uh, than that, I do get what he's saying, of yeah. course, right? When you're not in the combat. Right. It's like we like to war game. Right. But do we Place, like to war? No. No. Play some advanced squad leader, you know. Yeah. Um, and there was weird incidences where, did you remember those? Where, like, the Vietnamese would stand up in the field they'd, and They'd laugh. laugh. They'd and wave smile and wave. And then get shot. And, and get shot. Crazy. I don't, or, and, they, or they'd say that they saw them walking along laughing and giggling and shooting uh, the, wounded. The, the wounded yeah. American soldiers. Yeah. And he never went through an... Ex- he, I never saw any explanation of that. That was never no, brought forward, I, and I thought he would have asked. I, I've seen it nowhere else. Yeah. In other films, I don't recall. Um, so eventually they do rescue that platoon that's out on the edge, right? Yes. There weren't many left, but I think seven of the, I think there were 20 dead, um, seven wounded, or 14 wounded, and seven that were without a scratch. Yeah, and there's uh, some friendly fire in this, like in all wars, which is always shocking to the students at school, you know. Yeah. Like, did you hear in Iraq that one of our own guys was killed by the Canadians yeah. that were bombing? Say, so, hey, you know, kids, yeah, learn it now. It's 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 war. It's messy, and and in this war, particularly today, we're being much more careful than historically. Um, so, but yeah, and the, and the battles get very mixed up, right? And there's people getting overrun by enemy troops and right. then uh, playing dead and so on. And a lot of examples, of course, of heroism, amazing things. Here was uh, this one. Spot here talks about Lieutenant Joe Marm. He'd spotted an enemy machine gun dug into a big termite hill that was chewing up both the Bravo Company platoons. After failing to knock it out with the LAW rocket, I don't, what's an LAW? Light anti, a- anti- anti-personnel yeah, weapon? No, maybe? it's a, LAW. Um, LATWs, World War II light anti-tank weapon. Yeah, this was just I'll look LAW. it up. You keep going. Okay. Uh, after failing to knock it out with an LAW rocket and a thrown grenade, he decided to deal with it directly. He charged through the fire, tossed a hand grenade behind the hill, and then cleaned up the survivors with his M16 rifle. The following day, Lieutenant Al Devney found a dead North Vietnamese officer and 11 enemy soldiers sprawled behind that term- termite mound. Says Deal, Joe Marm saved my life and the lives of many others. Lieutenant Marm stag- staggered back to his platoon with a bullet wound in his jaw and neck. He joined a growing stream of walking wounded flowing back. Uh, he later received the Medal of Honor. I'll just skip ahead there. He was presented the Medal of Honor for that. And there were lots of examples of just amazing heroism. Yeah. Yeah, he really did a good job of covering all those. Uh, the LAW is the light. It is the light anti-tank weapon. Oh, it is. Okay. It's, the, it's like a... Solid rocket propulsion unit that has a, well, the M72, so I don't know if this was then or more like now, was a 66-millimeter unguided anti-tank weapon. More modern, I'm not as familiar with all the vehicles in, in Vietnam. Military history this month hit showed one. It had like four or six, six, 106-millimeter cannons, Jeff, on it. Yeah. One vehicle. Wow. And it could the soldiers in Vietnam loved it because it could come in and just blow away concrete walls like yeah. so quickly yeah <laughs> you know and then i there's um you know what incident that touched me is this one here 
That initial volley of fire shattered Brave Boy's left hand and his M16, and bullet fragments peppered his arm and thigh. Bleeding, weaponless, and in extreme pain, Brave Boy crawled into thick brush and hid. When night fell on the 17th, he crept out and ran into three other American soldiers, all wounded. He crawled away for help toward the sound of the firing and ran into more wounded Americans just as a North Vietnamese patrol moving through the area discovered them. Brave Boy played dead for several hours, listening to the other wounded Americans around him being executed. Finally, when things settled down, Brave Boy, who had lost all sense of direction, again started crawling through the tall elephant grass toward where he thought he would find his company. Bad choice. He was 180 degrees off and moving directly south, past the right flank of Charlie Company survivors. On November 22nd, his fifth day alone, a North Vietnamese soldier on the tail end of a passing column looked into a hole in which he was hiding in the brush and saw the American. Brave Boy said, Four walked by me and the last one looked me right in the eye. He stopped and pointed his rifle at me. I raised my wounded hand and shook my head no. He lowered his rifle and walked away. So young. He was just a boy, not more than 16 or 17. Yeah, that is really bizarre. There were other examples uh, of stuff like that. And it just makes you think you you just don't know what you're going to do, how you're going to react yourself, or how the person you're interacting with is going to react. react to you. Yeah. Yeah. And then they did mention that these families notified... Well, in the one case of Brave Boy, that guy, he had gangrene eventually, and he was back home. His family had been notified that he was missing and presumed dead. The local newspaper ran his obituary, but he was alive, you know. When did the Army change that policy to missing in action, I wonder? Mm. Why would they announce that he, he was presumed dead? Yeah. Uh, and how that works today, I don't know. And, and you know, the notification of the wives, you know. In the movie, the wives played a larger part. It was also in the book, right? They yeah. talked about them being notified. Right. Should I jump to that now or wait? Um, no, why don't you go ahead. Um, that they just had cab drivers drive up and give them the death notices of their yeah. husbands. Yeah. And some of the cab drivers were not emotionally connected to the material they were delivering. Some were struggling with having to deliver the material. Yeah. And that the Army had no set better policy like even and laura sat in on some of the movie and at that point she had sat in on the end of it mm. had said where's the chaplain yeah you know like it's not like in the other movies you see <laughs> so i thought that was a little odd that they were unprepared or thought that could be advisable well if you think about uh movies we've seen about world war ii and i can't think of anything i've read about it exactly but in movies in world war ii it's always the the telegram that comes I don't remember any instances where... But it's walked up. It's always walked up Is to it? the door, yes. Okay. I thought it was in one Yeah, you could, be, you could be right. But they certainly did... They, it certainly seemed like they weren't prepared for this. This other interesting thing was this trumpet bugle. Mm-hmm. was a French army bugle, manufactured in 1900, captured from the French by the Vietnamese, and then recaptured... Yeah, the trophy the, had changed hands again. The seventh cab had the bugle. Yeah. And that was kind of, I thought, just was interesting. Yeah. And the movie did show that also. Yes. 
And I've seen the movie a couple of times, so when I read the book, uh, I really I liked having had seen the movie because it it helped me with some of the parts that were uh, confusing, especially with all the characters. You know, a lot of different guys, everybody mentioned by name, and so some of them were really really stood out, like uh, Sergeant Major Plumley and and others. So I was glad that the movie did such a great job of portraying the book and having read the book now i thought yeah this is a perfect this would be a perfect movie this would be excellent as a movie because it's contained and it's amazing yeah near the end of the book aftermath he's talking about the uh, um people's army lieutenant general nguyen huan said this Oh, and well, and also talk about the Albany portion, part two, which I thought was a little too much. Yeah. Actually. Agreed. It was like the, after the x-ray landings, they talked about this next portion, but it was also terrible. It says here, though, about the Vietnamese saying, this is the first time our front fought the Americans and we defeated the Americans, causing big American losses. As a military man, we realize it's very important to win the first battle. It raised our soldiers' morale. So, you know, they walked away feeling they won it. I asked the kids at school, we feel like we won it. And, again, I, I asked the question, how are you defining victory? Is it holding that ground? Because we also held the ground, right? They retreated back into the mountains? They did, yeah. Is it by the numbers of dead? Is it by, you know, what... And if you're, but what are you measuring it? And then in the very end here at the epilogue, he's, uh, I thought it's very sensitive about the war. In the small, closed world of military, great victories, great defeats, and sacrifices are never forgotten. They're remembered with battle streamers attached to unit flags among the scores of streamers that billow and whirl around the flags of all battalions of the 1st Cav Division. There's one deep blue presidential unit citation streamer that says Pleiku Province. School children no longer memorize the names and dates of great battles. Perhaps that is good. Perhaps that's the first step on the road to a world where wars are no longer necessary, perhaps. But we remember those days and our comrades. And long after we are gone, the long, that long blue streamer will still caress pl- proud flags. And I think there's an element in this book where he, he almost, you know, questioned, is this a good idea, a bad idea? You never got the idea this was really a patriotic flag-waving, did you? No, no, not at all. It was more like <clears throat> a, a man uh, charged with a with a mission that he had to do, and he did it well. And he did it well. That's a good way to put it. Jeff. Fighting an army with a similar motivation. Yes. And again, showing both sides of it. Yeah. thought it was fairly fair. Not, yeah. Not really seemed biased at all, and and very enjoyable. Yeah. Really. In a sad way, as good, you say. Right. Very good book. Highly recommended. Well, I guess that wraps it up for the book portion. That'll wrap it up. So next show, we will be talking about the movie, We Were Soldiers with Mel Gibson. So, hope to see you there, everybody. Yep. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Spine and sprocket.